Welcome to another episode of Business School. My name is Phineas Ellis. I am the co-founder of Stereotype Studio, a podcast production company. And my name is Stephen Cool. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Burrow, a direct-to-consumer furniture brand. This is a show where we explore the many aspects of consumer startup culture. Okay, really excited about today's episode. We have, who's become a recent friend, Sagan Schultz, who's the founder and CEO of WellWell. And I'm going to let Sagan talk a little bit more about what the business is, but we met, I don't know, about just over a year ago, somewhere around there, and started, just like sat down at a coffee shop and talked a bit about his business and a bit about my business and what we were both working on. And, uh, and immediately was somebody that you recognized was in the trenches. Like, I think Sagan would probably consider himself to be the kind of entrepreneur that is like, no matter what happens, like we're gonna get to the other side. So I'm, I'm excited to have him here today. I think there's a lot of different places we can go to. But the biggest reason and the most topical reason is in the middle of a fundraise and he's using Republic, the crowdfunding platform founded by Ken Wen, who was an episode on the podcast. Anyway, welcome to the show, Sagan. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Big fan of the show also. Yeah, thank you. One of our early, early listeners. So we're, you know, we really cherish those. Every individual person that listens to the show, we cherish. So we appreciate that. You're the guy. You're the guy that's listening. So tell us a little <laughs> bit about Well Well. If zoom, zoom out a little bit and just do a quick history, bring us up to speed as to where you are today. For sure. So I, I started this company completely coming from out of the CPG space. Um, I started it when I was actually in medical school transitioning to business school uh, here in New York. And um, I wanted to do that transition mostly because I saw a lot of things that were wrong in healthcare and I wanted to be on the side of fixing healthcare, um, hence the MBA part of, of that. And in that time of my life, I was actually very involved in the fitness space in New York, doing really hard workouts like a lot of people were. And it was sort of when I started to see the whole, quote, recovery thing start to become a trend, mostly because you'd have these workouts that were just like killing people. And I felt that, too. I was partaking in, in that whole thing. What kind of workouts? I mean, these were like these, you know, boutique fitness studios in the city that were kind of building their brand based on we're the hardest, we're the toughest, like this is the craziest workout you'll ever do. And lots of variations around that. I think, you know, CrossFit was also really big at the time, which um, was another thing. I never really got into that part. So you're but. saying like berries or like a, a sweaty basement where the lights are off and people are going to the point where they pass out? Kind of all of it. I mean, <laughs> at, at one point it was kind of like everyone was doing everything and it was just this really kind of upcoming hot space to be in. And so you'd see the same crowds of people at the same places just trying to be part of this like scene at the time. And so I was involved in that for a little while and not really at all anymore. But at that time I was basically, you know, I was in med school, I was working crazy hours in the hospital and it was like the only other thing I did outside of it to keep kind of like my mental sanity. But um, long story short is I was looking for things to help with the recovery process um, just for my body and having, you know, a nutrition bent personally, you'd go to the shelf at the grocery store or whatever, and you couldn't find anything that um, if you had any nutrition knowledge all of it was just marketing fluff it was just kind of a bunch of bs you know brands saying things like we distill sunshine from the rainforest and put it into a bottle just for you and <laughs> like it, that's great and the products may be fine but I, like i know it, it's not going to help me with what i'm trying to do and so i basically started making stuff in my kitchen read a lot of clinical research what are elite athletes doing that sort of thing 
and just started making stuff. And I'd bring it around to friends at workouts and people liked it. And we started making jokes about like, maybe I can put this on a shelf. Ha ha ha. And um, to make the longer story short, you know, I ended up grabbing some co-founders, formed an LLC. And six months later, we launched with Whole Foods as our first customer while I was just starting business school and um, kind of in the in the midst of a pretty busy life. <laughs> That's amazing. So I've I've heard about this that Whole Foods has has a great program where they will allow you to take over a small part of it. It's like try new brands, right? What's, what's that process like of getting into Whole Foods? So it's changed a lot um, over the last few years that we've been involved with it. That's basically what we did. So we went in as a regional brand. Um, Whole Foods has, they have it separated at a global level where you can um, get in as a global brand and they'll put you everywhere or they kind of test you in different regions. And sometimes even within regions, they'll test you within like five stores. I don't think that happens as much anymore, but for example, you could go into just Manhattan and Brooklyn stores. And if you do well, they expand you from there. We went into the entire Northeast as our first customer. So at the time it was 34 stores or something like that. Wow. Um, was that hard to do? It is very hard to do, especially um, when six months previous to that, you were you had nothing. And so- Oh, to produce enough. Well, it's hard. to go through the whole process. So we went from forming an LLC, literally not having to brand, not having a product, not having anything to being on a shelf. And that is a process I, at that speed, I don't recommend to any CPG founder at this point, but it's what we did. And it was an exciting opportunity. The opportunity was there and um, we just went like after FDA it. FDA approval? There's a lot of things you have to do. Um, some of it's with FDA, but I mean, there's definitely a lot of things around nutrition labeling and, and that sort of process. But um, it's a time-consuming process, and I'm still just amazed that we were able to pull that off. I'm sensitive to the idea that oftentimes when we hear founder stories, it's like, we launched in Whole Foods, and we were just killing the game, right? It's like, to launch in Whole Foods, like most CPG brands don't get to launch in Whole Foods. Why, why, how did you get into Whole Foods and like shed a little bit? I know a little bit more about your story, so I know that it wasn't like Whole Foods was... Yeah, we got into Whole Foods and then it was smooth sailing all the way through. Like And like operationally, yeah. you're saying it was all challenging, which I get. But like when you pitch Whole Foods, is that super hard or have they, and I know you're saying maybe it happens less and less now, but at the time, my understanding was that they, they try to make that easier for new brands. Like we have a whole process, you can pitch us and it's not it's not guaranteed. And was it just like, a relationship that you, somebody had? It was basically like a door was open because you knew a guy. Yeah. So it's one thing I've learned coming into the CPG space from other spaces. It's an old school industry, heavily based on relationships. That's been changing over the last, call it two, three years, I would say, with like technology coming into the space and younger you know, millennial founders and, and whatnot. But historically, it's been extremely relationship based, um, very face to face. And for us to do that, I knew that was the one thing I did know going into it, that I had to sort of stack my advisory team, for example, with people that have been in the space forever to just open doors like that. And that's how we did it. Smart. Yeah. And it, that's it, a tactical decision that right. you made. And we had to, you know, I had to give a little equity out. Yeah. And just, you had to give up part of your company in order to open those doors. This isn't like because you're a connected guy. I think there's a misnomer sometimes here that's like only privileged wealthy, well-connected people do can do X, Y, and Z. And those are only the stories that we tell. No, you gave up part of your company in order to open certain doors. It's a huge trade-off. And to be clear, at that time, I was not a connected guy in the space. I was new to starting a business as of like three weeks before that. Um, I didn't know anyone in the business world in general. I didn't know anyone in the CPG world except for the people that I got onto my team somehow. 
Uh, and that was it. So I was definitely not a connected human in that world. But I think there's this like misnomer that there is a large group of people who are connected. The only people who are connected and have the playbook are repeat founders. If you've already started a company, then you kind of know what you're doing to get something off the ground. But everyone else is just figuring it out. I think a lot of people think that they're like, oh, I'm the only one that like has to like figure this out or whatever. Like nobody's like telling you this is what you do. Even, even when you get quote unquote legitimate investors, they're not like, hey, here's the playbook now. They're like, hey, where's your progress? Like we gave you all this money, like do something with it. But something I think you two probably actually have in common that I respect is like not being super precious about equity. Like obviously you care about it and it matters who's on your cap table, but it is a chip you can play early on in your business. And you can't, if you don't play it, like there's no use in being proud. It's better to be one, own 1% of a billion dollar company that owns 0%, you know, whatever the, the term is. But Yeah, the rich versus king trade-off. We had an entrepreneur write into the show and ask us a question about this. And it was like, how do I incentivize a, a really top player in terms of building a team to come onto my team, which gives me credibility, which which will then allow me to fundraise? And it's like, well, give them equity. Yep. <laughs> give them and responsibility. Especially as a first-time founder, right? Like you have no leverage right. at that point. You have zero. And there's no reason that anyone should make a bet on you, period. And the only way that many are willing to do that is through equity, like you said, for sure. And to go back to your point about founders being connected or not connected and repeat founders, that's hugely true in the CPG space. Um, and there are many examples of that where founders have had exits and they just you know, will go out the next day and raise $40 million for their new venture pre-revenue. And because it is a framework and it's a system, and for the most part, it's kind of the same system. You can kind of do CPG the same thing. CPG does have a playbook. Exactly. And I think it's changing a lot now because there's a lot of examples of where the playbook gets up to a certain point where you know these companies get acquired, but then three years after that get offloaded because they were, turned out to be a poor financial investment. So a lot of things are changing in the space. But you know, I belong to a CPG founders Slack group, for example, that has something like, I don't know, maybe 170 people in food and beverage. And I can tell you for sure that most of these emerging brand founders are uh, don't have that luxury and everyone is trying to figure it out day by day. Absolutely. Okay, so let's fast forward a little bit to today. You are in the process of a fundraise. How much money have you raised leading up to this point and from whom? And then what led you to do it this way where you're fundraising on Republic? Yeah, so we originally launched the brand to the public in 2016 with Whole Foods, like I said. We, at that point, had subsisted and kind of lived on a small friends and family convertible note that we raised in the process. Um, and it became very clear that this is a very capital-intensive business. And to grow and continue to grow, we were going to have to raise a lot more money and you know do things like expand our product line and all that. So I brought on... Um, institutional money, private equity money at the end of 2017, mostly to go through um, the first part and most of 2018 through a rebrand and product development and to do all the things that we didn't properly allocate time to in the beginning because of the opportunity and just kind of speed to market. So I brought on an investor in the private equity world that was previously the CEO at a very large produce player in the space that sold for a very large multiple and, and that sort of thing. And so really strategic. And that basically gave me the ability to go through that whole process that eventually rolled into sort of a series A once we launched in 2019 with the new brand and new product and everything, they invested more cash and that was kind of like a series A plus. So to date, we've raised about four and a half million bucks, which, you know, 
we could talk about where that falls in comparison to other brands like us that are capitalized or undercapitalized in the space. But so that was us basically through 2019. And then at the end of 2019, we decided we were going to raise a bridge round through another convertible note that we launched in December. I believe we took our first investment in that um, December 30th and had been raising that throughout Q1 of 2020. And then COVID hit. Um, And so that experience was, I mean, you know, raising money already is hard. And then you go from having, you know, call it 30 conversations with people that are interested in coming into your cap table. All of a sudden, you know, there's an extreme amount of uncertainty that comes into the market, especially in food and bev and retail and where you can go and what's going to happen. And that changed a lot. Yeah. My understanding is in COVID, when COVID hit, it was, I don't want to say easy, but relatively easy for a lot of people to raise more money from existing investors but new investors, forget it. Like it just wasn't happening. Right. And I think that's the responsible thing to do if you are a current, call it lead investor or someone that has a significant amount of money invested in a company, realizing that the uncertainty and the risk for the company, but also for your investment has gone up dramatically. And so that's your job as an investor to either pull together capital or to put your money where your mouth is, quite frankly, and keep the thing going. Or, I mean, watch it die. It's, I think, up to you at that point. Um, but that's definitely the case. And in CPG, it's a different type of investor than I think probably what you have been exposed to in the tech world and YC world. And it's a lot of these sort of smaller funds that are um, family office types or you know just wealthy people that are managing someone else's money. And there's a lot of exceptions here, but a lot of those types of investments, you know, they don't have the teams to do crazy diligence. A lot of it is based around groupthink. If X firm is investing, how can we tag along to that, knowing that they probably put the time in to figure that out if it's a good deal or not? That's how the entire investment community works. Right. That's that's tech too. Yeah, that's yeah, tech that's too. That's the best VCs in the game or the biggest and <laughs> Not most private notable. equity. Private equity is different. Venture capital. That's You're prejudiced works. towards private equity. You like private equity. Well, well no, private. You come e- from. You did. You did a little stint in it, right? Yeah, but private equity. You have to do. You're doing diligence to buy and own a company. Right. So you, you have to re- operate. You it. really have yeah. to get right. in deep. And there's no like, well, who else is investing? No, you're the only one investing. Right. So like, you have to. I, it's, I'm. You yeah, can, and you then can it's say, on, and then it's on your books. You can say what you want if they are positive or negative to have a private equity investor owning your company, but it's just. It's just different. VC yeah, 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 is yeah. totally what you're talking about, where it's like, oh, who's who's leading it, or who else who else is coming into the round, and then you have to create this like FOMO situation where people feel like, like everybody wants to feel like they heard about the deal through their like super proprietary network, and it's like because of their connections, they happen to get in, like they want to invest before the the round is even happening, but they also simultaneously want it to be a super hot round and. It's, it's which so is dumb. a great this is why this is why you're a podcast host a great segue into the democratization of <laughs> fundraising but but you know honestly fundraising Do we have Ken behind the curtain <laughs> fundraising <laughs> fundraising on republic is a complete it completely subverts that reality right so what attracted you to that was it a did you resort to that because of covid and because of the 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 landscape that you describe being as dry as it was in short Yes, and it's a, it's a few things, and a few things came out of this that I realized um, I had not even been thinking about that are you know additional pros to raising on something like Republic, and you know so we basically like I said went from having a lot of conversations to basically having a lot of these people be like well if this person's out I'm out type of thing, and so 
you know, one of our, in January, I, I went through a whole team restructuring and company restructuring just as far as like our financials go in general, because one of our big OKRs for the year was to- What the, what is an OKR? Oh, here we go. And what the fuck is a restructure? That can mean a lot of different things, right? Restructure can mean you promote your CMO to a CTO, but it could also mean you canned a bunch of people. Which one is it? Yeah. So in short, an OKR is is just objective and key results. It was made popular by essentially Google, but John Doerr from you know the venture world. And it's just a way of structuring kind of your goals. Got and it. Cool. You can do more research on that. It's very simple, but highly effective. Got I it. recommend that everyone, every founder, take a look at it. But one of the biggest objectives we had for the year, I called it make cash flow king, which is just a fancier way of saying like get profitable in a space that is not generally conducive for a brand of our size or really any size, to be honest, to be profitable. And that means doing a lot of different, a lot of things differently than a lot of our competitors would. You know, a lot of the people in the space are capitalized at five to 10 to 20 X what we are. And therefore it requires a kind of a David versus Goliath sort of strategy. You can't just do the same things. And so we decided that very early in 20 at the beginning of the year and went through a lot of changes as far as payroll goes. Um, and just basically said like, this is going to happen by the end of the year. Then COVID hit. And then, you know, you shrunk your team, significantly. shrunk the team, shrunk a lot of things. Yeah. It, it was, there's a lot of things, you know, going back to the playbook and CPG, there's a lot of things that you kind of just are expected to do because that's how the system works. And quite frankly, coming from outside the space, not having any sort of um, thoughts on these things beforehand, a lot of them just seem crazy. Like, why would we do it this way? There's a lot of that, that has always been in my head. And finally, I was like, we're not, we're done doing it this way. It doesn't make sense. I think we can do it better. And quite frankly, if we keep doing it this way, especially now, given COVID, especially now, not knowing if we'll be able to raise in the next three, six, nine months, we don't have a choice. Like yeah. we can't do it this way. Yeah. We'll go out of business in three months. Are if you we happy that you cash. started making that transition before COVID and so you were more prepared when COVID hit? A hundred percent. We were already thinking like that. Yep. And So you cut a bunch of people from the team before COVID hit? Yeah, basically right, like right before. I mean, it was literally almost like at the same time, but it was a transition process. And then COVID kind of sped some of the stuff up um, around some of the other, you know, business expenses and, and stuff like that. So basically when that happened and we had all these conversations kind of, you know, not dry up, but everybody that we were speaking with, and this was probably 20 different funds or investors at this point, everybody iced everything because of the uncertainty or what a lot of them did that still had, capital that they had to deploy over the next you know few months just moved all their stuff upstream and so they're only investing in you know 10 million plus revenue or 20 million like just to kind of hedge their financial risk knowing that they're probably gonna have less issues with with that so i basically said i don't know what's going to happen but i know it's a possibility that for the next nine months we can't raise cash so we have to become profitable or break even as fast as we possibly can and went through that process and the nice thing about Republic, to go back to why we launched here, is um, obviously COVID and this whole thing has kind of gone a lot longer than a lot of people originally thought. And at some point, you have you know you can't force investors to come back to the table. You can't force people to invest money in your company. And with the uncertainty and being operating in a highly capital intensive business, you have to have cash coming in somewhere. And if you have no control over that, it's like you can just see where it's going. And so the thing that's very attractive about Republic for us is that we could at least have a little bit more control over the timing 
and sort of process of getting any sort of money into the company rather than, you know, going back and forth with people that are interested, but, you know, finishing their fund, like all the types of things. Yeah, it's just if you're interested, invest here now, you get equity or you get an agreement for future equity, but whatever, like the terms are set and you can just invest the money now. It's a much faster process that gives us at least a little bit more confidence in knowing at least when things will happen. Even if you raise a small amount of money, call it $50,000 or something like that. At least I know on X day, I can draw that money down and use it and I can plan for that. The other interesting things about raising on Republic or a platform like this is if you raise from 2,000 people, you have 2,000 brand ambassadors. And I think on your podcast with Ken, he made the point saying that even if someone invests a hundred dollars in, I think he was comparing like Uber or Lyft or or whatever it was. If you invest a hundred dollars, next time you call a, a a car, you're picking the one and getting your friends to pick the one that you even have a hundred dollars in, and that's super powerful. I think it's a really underestimated value proposition of this model. We talk so much about these companies that have done incredibly well, and we talked about this when we talked about word of mouth marketing. It's all about word of mouth in the early days, right? It's about creating moments and creating brand awareness and that people actually talk about. That's the most powerful marketing asset. And I think this is a way to accelerate that. If I own $5 of a company, I'm going to choose that company. I'm definitely going to support it. And I'm going to brag about the fact that I'm, I own a piece of that company. And that's word of mouth marketing. That's really powerful. And you know what's funny? Um, I, think, I think people have this idea that this applies to, and I could be the only person that doesn't agree with this, but um, I think people think this applies to public companies too. But if I invest in a public company's stock, I'm, I don't really feel an allegiance to this company. I like literally look at it solely as an investment. That's an interesting point. Like yeah. if I buy Delta Airlines stock, I'm no less, I'm no more likely to book my next flight on Delta because I own stock in it because I know I'm not going to make a difference. But with a private company, I feel completely different. Totally. Are there any downsides to it? Like I know from a reporting perspective, it's kind of a pain. Yeah. So I, there's a, a few things and it's it's not necessarily better or worse than raising other, you know, other ways. I think um, it's similar. It's just different work, right? So like the first thing is like, you know, to put up a campaign page on Republic or another platform, it's not a small lift for your team. It's not like you're going public. It's not like you're filing an S1, but it's a lot of work. There's a lot of like backend accounting stuff that has to happen. There's different, you know, you have to file with SEC. There's, there's that goes into it. Plus like putting together a different type of pitch to a different type of investor. It's fine, but we're two people. Like we operate the company with two people. And by the way, we're like a brand that we sell to Walmart and Kroger and HEB and some of these huge retailers. And there's a lot that goes on on the backend for two people. So when it's like that, it is a lift. So that's one thing. That's true of any kind of raise for the most part. It's just a different type. I think the other thing to think about is sort of your cost of capital. And I think this is kind of where it gets a little nuanced with different platforms with this. And we looked at everybody. Um, but, you know, a, a CrowdSafe is founder friendly for the most part. Convertible Note is also can be founder friendly. It depends, not always. Um, you know, and when you're looking at raising money, it's equity versus debt. And these sort of things like a crowd save for convertible note um, fall in the middle of that where they're, you know, it's kind of a hybrid. It's debt that you're paying interest on that converts into equity. And so there's stuff to think about like that as well. And so when you look at, you know, going on a platform like Republic, you are you have this security that has 
sort of a higher cost of capital than if you were to just take on debt and pay interest, right? Because you're paying interest either through, I mean, you're paying the platform a set fee, which is equivalent to paying interest on a convertible note. And then that converts to equity, which is also expensive. You know, people expect a return to put their money in or to keep funding the business later. So that's the other thing. But otherwise, you know, honestly, it seems like the upside is just outweighs it. Like the, the work and the lift and everything that goes into it is kind of the same across the board when you're doing these different types of things. You know, to, candidly, we're also raising a private round concurrently, like with this one. It's the same one we've had open since mm. end of December. We never stopped on that. It's just- I'm ordering right now on your website. <laughs> nice. You're ordering some well-well? I'll mm-hmm. give you a promo code. Yeah? Yeah, you can actually use Republic20. Republic Get you 20%, 20 off. Whoa, nice. is that for all the listeners? Uh, yeah, actually, it is now. <laughs> <laughs> we can edit that out. I can cut it. No, can... it's just, go for it. I love that. Um, where are you at when you think about the long tail for this business? You're currently the owner operator. Obviously, CPG companies get acquired all the time, and I don't know if if running it operationally for the next however many years is of interest or if that's even on the table. How do you think about that long term? Yeah, so the the space has been changing a lot also over the last few years. And I alluded to this earlier. Typically what happens in CPG is you grow to a certain revenue run rate that becomes attractive for a strategic. They buy you and that's it. Because they know that they can distribute or take whatever your distribution strategy is and multiply by 10 or whatever. And then they get, you get way bigger, which they get their return on the investment from that. In theory. But yeah, exactly. So these brands like us will raise a ton of cash They'll pump money into growing the business, never become profitable, offload the business to someone like Pepsi or Coke. And in theory, you drop them into that distribution and everything pencils and it makes sense. That happens. But more oftentimes than not, what we've been seeing over the last few years is a lot of these big acquisitions have then subsequently been offloaded and it didn't pan out. Right. And so I think because of the way the market's been working the last few years, especially with things like WeWork blowing up and just people shifting from growth at all costs in general to let's see if we can, you know, at least have a path to profitability. Actually become a real business. Actually become a real business. <laughs> I, I think the the strategy has changed where, you know, I'm not gunning for a, a Coke acquisition or a Pepsi acquisition. I just, it could happen if I did a lot of other things that I also am not trying to do, like raise $30 million in cash and build a team of 200 people and, and that sort of thing. So what you're seeing now is sort of these alternative exits where it could be you're a shortcut for another brand that's still startup but larger than you that is rolling up brands in your space to take public it could be through a portfolio of brands just owned by a fund um spac well and that's back that's a really interesting thing right now too there are definitely um and i won't say much about this but there are definitely portfolios of brands that are looking at doing things like SPACs, um, had a lot of conversations <laughs> yeah. in that as well. And so I, I, one, it's the exit opportunity for us has definitely changed since when I started this company to now. It's it, thinking about it completely differently. And quite honestly, more realistically, I think a lot of, you know, you see some of these crazy exits and every founder that comes into the space thinks that like, that's the thing. And uh, one, it's obviously not the case for almost anybody. And two, it's not always a great idea. So to more directly answer your question, there's a lot of different opportunities right now that we are looking at all of. And, you know, one route is to try to compete kind of how every brand has always done it, but would require raising a whole bunch more money, building back or building a real team, like a lot more than just two of us and going into the market like that, which I don't know if that's the best 
route anyway, given how fast things are changing in the space. So, um, you know, everything's kind of on the table right now. And in the meantime, we're still growing the business. We're still doing all the things we'd normally be doing. How's the business performed during COVID? It's been interesting, actually. So at the beginning of COVID, what you saw was, uh, you know, everyone panic buying. And basically who benefited the most from that was the giant CPG companies, right? Because they have these really deep relationships with the retailers. There's like a level of trust where if they need to get supply, they supply them. And pretty much at the beginning of this, they crushed all the small brands. Most of it was because supply chain, a lot of the distribution partners kind of like went down. They're not always the most well-run businesses. And so it-, it Meaning you couldn't even get into stores temporarily? Yeah, there was a lot of stuff where the, sh- the shelves were empty and sort of the smaller distributors or some of the natural channel distributors, for example, were perishable. So like cold chain operations is is way harder than if you're not perishable. And so what you saw was a lot of empty shelf space that then got taken up by things that didn't originally own that shelf space. And it was interesting because a lot of the big CPGs, you know, had crazy sales growth. They're going to have the biggest year they've ever had. But, you know, a lot of reporting that's come out in the last few months through IRI, Nielsen, McKinsey just put out a report about how uh, a lot of the big CPGs are, you know, doing most of the sales, but not contributing to most of the growth. And that bump still made it really hard for them to capture actual market share. So basically saying that like a lot of the issues that they were having before COVID, they're still having and are going to have. And it's these small brands that are actually producing most of the growth in the space. In short, it's been a little bit of a roller coaster because at the beginning of this, all the small brands, all the perishable brands like us totally got nailed, especially up and down the street with all the spots that you sell at, like in New York that just like closed down or Mm -hmm. like you couldn't go outside or or whatever. Um, That being said, you know, we haven't only been playing defense during this time. We, another big part of in January when we were setting our OKRs and and sort of going down this path of profitability was we're only going to go after retailers that make their that run their business based on selling product rather than doing things like forcing you to pay for shelf space or forcing you to pay for ads that we all know don't work. And so a lot of it was a move away from that sort of natural channel you know, small chain independent retailers to people like Walmart and HEB and people that you can sell directly to decrease your price on the shelf. And by the way, they also pay their bills on time and in full, which is not the case, uh, you know, across the other sort of three tier distribution system, which I could talk about forever and how it doesn't make sense for a lot of brands like us, but Mm -hmm. it's probably another conversation. Are you getting the question about COVID? I feel like every investor now, if you do well during COVID, they're like, are you only doing well because of COVID? And then, or if you're not, they're like, why aren't you doing well? And like, when will this rebound? Like everyone's just so skeptical of performance up or down and how COVID is going to continue to play a role in the future. Yeah. It's, it's generally one of the first questions. Um, and it definitely was earlier this year. It's, I feel like people have gotten a little bit more of a handle on it now. What is the answer? Uh, well, the answer is like, it's kind of like I said, you know, for us, I'm very candid. Like we got nailed in March and April in most of our business up and down the street and that hurt. And we decided at that point, like we had to make a change and play some offense and then launch these other retailers, for example, that would make up for that. And then eventually when some of this stuff comes back online, which it still hasn't, and it's probably going to be a little while, then it will be additive rather than, you know, then we'll have all of that. And so in, in some way it's been an interesting way to shift our focus in a way that was bound to happen at some point, or at least become part of the plan at some point. Um, and I think conveying that to investors 
it's you can convey it all you want and it can make as much sense as it does but i think on their end it depends on what they've also heard right so like comparing apples to apples is different or is, is it's hard in our space sometimes because we're a beverage brand but like for example if you're an investor looking at us versus someone that is not a perishable brand you're going to hear very different stories about their covid experience and you know it's a different comparison at that point and i think um, it's amazing you can really tell very quickly i think investors who have spent a lot of time researching and understanding your specific industry and category versus ones that are just lobbing up questions that you can tell yeah they don't know the difference between your business and the next one 100% and it's been another interesting part of this you know i go into a lot of these meetings now you know at the beginning you're like oh my god i hope i walked out of that like impressing them and I hope they follow up and I like, you know, and now it's, it's become so much more of a two way thing where I ask arguably harder questions most of the time. Um, because you know, it's literally at the end of the day, do I want this person on my cap table? Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, everybody is quote value add, but like in most cases not. And there's just all these sorts of reasons. The best way to be, to get people interested in your business to invest, one of the best things you can do is grill them on them being an investor because then they feel like you're interviewing them not the other way around and you should like everybody should do that what even if even if you don't have a lot of options on the table and you're you're probably going to take whoever is like yeah i'll write a check and you're like i don't have, like most people don't most entrepreneurs we've talked about this don't actually have the luxury of having like multiple term sheets on the table and whatever like that pretty rarely happens but you should still interview the people because ultimately, the person who says they're going to write a check more often than not is also the person that is the most knowledgeable and interested in your business anyway. So like you can interview them and you should interview them hard. In all fairness, you know that we're I'm very grateful to have, um, you know, CPG veterans on our cap table at our, our lead investor group. And I think it's also provided a really strong contrast for me to have them and then go out and raise and just, you know, it's like a it's a relativity. It's an anchor point to really know who's being smart and asking the right questions and that sort of thing. And, you know, if you're going to go after a quote, a lot of people call it dumb money or people that don't ask the right questions, don't know, like, you know, don't do the research. Then like, why wouldn't you just go on Republic with people that are just wanting to get in? Like it's the value add is the same in most cases, right? It's like some hundred dollar investor just wants to be a part of the brand, wants to follow the growth, wants to talk about the brand. Like that's all these other people are doing. They just have maybe a bigger ego about it, right? So like if there's no actual value add, then... Yeah, that's what struck me when we first met, honestly, was like how different CPG is than other industries and how specific the path is, how how there is a playbook, how relation... I mean, it's like one investor or one partner early on that has a relationship with Whole Foods. It's like you're now in Whole Foods. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's it's a dramatic, it's like a dramatic difference. And there are exceptions to that. Like, no doubt there are founders in the CPG space that, you know, have their grandma's recipe of peanut butter or whatever it is and end up somehow getting a break and, you know, it flies. Yeah. But that's definitely not the, that's the exception, not the rule. And, but like on the other side of that, unfortunately, you have a lot of these repeat founders that somehow made it through the system that were funded initially had an exit and then get repeat exits. And it's not necessarily like, look, you all know products on the shelf that aren't great products that aren't good, that sell a ton. In your category, there are many. There are many. And that is being pumped up by funding. Yeah. Like lots of funding goes into buying that shelf space, pushing those velocity numbers, 
and people buy it because it exists and they win by distribution. That's known. Like yeah. that's just how it goes. It doesn't mean you have the best product. It, in most cases, it means you have a product that is the cheapest to make and is maybe not the best for people. Yeah. So how long is the fundraise campaign going to be live on Republic and will it be live by the time this comes out? <laughs> that's a good question yeah. yes so we just launched i think there's 117 days left for people awesome. to invest okay great so everybody who's listening to this we're going to put the link to this to the page on republic in the description of this episode everybody go everybody so go through the end of march yeah so okay. everybody wow that took me a long time to do that math <laughs> so uh everybody go buy a hundred dollars or more Oh. Well, we also, you know, if you invest a little bit more, we have some really cool, they call it perks okay. that you can get. So, you know, 250 bucks will get you some product. Oh. 500 bucks might get you a really slick hoodie. You know, there's okay, some Okay, so go go some buy cool some stock. That will be a fun thing. And then if you buy stock, reach out to us. Yeah, definitely, definitely reach out. If you hit us up on any branded anything, Instagram, whatever, you're basically getting me or uh, our marketing director directly. So um, we talk to like thousands of people personally. I think it's a really important part of being a founder. But um, yeah, hit us up for sure. It's amazing. Cool. Well, thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Class dismissed. for listening if you want to support this podcast the best thing you can do is hit the subscribe button take a minute hit the subscribe button so you'll be notified whenever we come out with a new episode